Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. In the year 3013, the galaxy was scintillating in the mellow light. <laughs> you stole it. You yep. stole it. You hear it every week, but you stole it. Yes. Um, the year for this one, it's always 3013 in our universe, but it's... Uh, it's, it's like 19... a nexus point in time, I guess. It's a nexus point in time, yeah. So it's uh, 1989 from where we're looking now. And this film is just, it's yet another Star Trek. The one people love, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I'm Luke. I am Matt. Welcome to our sci-fi sanctuary. I just let you finish it, right? Yep, and we've got a guest in the sanctuary with us tonight. Yeah, you it, it, kind of a guest. You hear him every week. Uh, it's the, the fellow that I do music with and talks about the scintillating galaxies. It is uh, Roving Sages Media's Roving Sages Media's Roving Sage Media. See, I can screw up my pronunciation, my own shit. Right? <laughs> no worries. Uh, hi, Scott Atkinson. Oh, greetings, gentlemen, all good people of the galaxy and fellow listeners. Right, right. Oh, and here comes a bullet train. Shinkansen, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds very lethal. Bullet train. Man, lethality is only like a mere Fe- few meters phaser away. Train. Phaser train. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's yeah, the future. Yeah, yeah. It's replaces the maglevs. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, getting into it, I guess with this film, I, I'll, I'll start off with where I first saw it. I I saw it before opening night, actually, now that I think mm. about it. I remember because I think my dad and I were like driving by and it's like, oh, they're showing, a, they're showing Star Trek V now. Like it was like a day or a week earlier, but it, it was definitely earlier. Mm. And we were like, yay, we get in. And I actually got pre-releases of a few Star Treks at this point. But uh, yeah, we came out hating it, as <laughs> I guess people did in 1989. Um, and I'll, I'll get to the reasons why. Um, you know, since that time, I guess you, you start rewatching the other ones so much that you start gravitating towards five. And then you kind of, I, I think we might all like this one here. Uh, I definitely do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. Loved it. Um, I don't know what it says about my taste, but I, I found it quite uh, actually very um, thought provoking. And um, uh, some of the criticisms about the, um, for example, the production and so on just seem like small beer to me. Um, actually, I felt philosophically it was quite fascinating. So. Yeah, and um, there's the bullet train going the other way. Yeah, that's actually the other bullet train. <laughs> anyway, um, everyone's in a hurry tonight. Yeah, dear. I, is Luke? Is this one of your like teenage DVD rentals? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't really see, apart from what I'd caught on TV, I didn't properly watch the track films until I bought them myself with my first job. Um, so when I saw Star Trek Five. It was already in my head, oh, this is the one everyone hates. So I went in, and of course I spotted some things which, you know, were not great. But overall, I was like, that was a, that was a fantastic romp. I enjoyed that. Um, and then going back, I think this is only the second time I watched it, was when I watched it for this podcast to start this week. And um, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's one element which I do think is utter horseshit, <laughs> but... It's also, that problem is there in one, two, and three. So <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, we'll get to it. Um, Scott, when did, when did you first do the Lombardo with this? Was it me giving you the DVD? Actually, it was, yes, I think with yourself, um, when we were catching up um, here in Japan, um, uh, imbibing as we do in a few well-placed spirits, and um, uh, we put that one into the DVD player at the time. And... Um, in my own altered state, I just found it fascinating. Uh, it was quite, uh, it was a great journey, or as Luke said, a good romp. Um, I, I could definitely attest to that. So. so before we get to the story, I guess I'll lay down what I think is the other utter hatred of this film. And, and I might have even mentioned a little bit before, but um, at, this is the first movie that just had K 
Captain Kirk in place of the Enterprise, ready to go on an adventure. Mm. And people, I guess, kind of wanted a standard adventure, and they got like one of the weird third season TOS episodes instead. Like a good weird third season TOS episode, but one of those. <laughs> I guess I can see that. I mean, you have the entire crew like turning on them, you know. Um, Nimbus Three. I mean, it's I like Nimbus Three. It's cool, but it seems kind of like small stakes, you know, compared to the Earth is about to get destroyed in four, and you know, Khan and all that. The center of the galaxy and meeting God is pretty high stakes. But like you say, it's the weird TOS kind of high stakes. Yeah, yeah. The episodes where they meet some all-powerful being never feel like the high stakes episodes. Right. Because you know that it's just going to be solved by some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what happens here. So yeah. it's, it's a movie which is solved by bullshit. But I, I don't know. It's pretty enjoyable bullshit in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, I think the only part I found a little bit disconcerting was actually in the sort of uh, the Star Wars-esque cantina where uh, Captain Kirk was assailed by sort of a cat lady. And um, she was disposed of quite... I felt with a fair bit of violence, and uh, I felt I felt that was just a little bit, uh, it was a little like a little bit too um, too harsh for the the mood of the general Star Trek. So she was um, pretty feral, to be fair. Also, <laughs> the move that Kirk just took her out with didn't look like it would have done much damage. <laughs> he just sort of threw her onto the bed like he was gonna like you know have his way with her. <laughs> Maybe that's what you had the problem with. No resurfacing. Maybe it's just the empathic part of me, but uh, I I did find that quite, uh, um, yeah. And then mentioning like whipping the the ship into shape. Um, Yeah. So uh, Uhuru was saying, I know you'll whip her into shape, Scotty. You always do. And um, my name being Scott, that's not my thing. Just to put it out there. But (laughs) like, um, I I guess the thing that does still bug me is just that Scotty head bump. It's just so stupid. So that, (laughs) Are we just getting into it now? My big issue with the whole thing is that Shatner clearly has zero respect for anyone apart from him and Spock. <laughs> like, McCoy gets some McCoy moments. gets, yeah, McCoy. But yeah, this is this one is like the big three and others. Yeah. And we just had four, which really doesn't do that. Mm. So it, it just feels like a step back to Kirk, Spock and McCoy are the main characters. Everyone else is a one-dimensional, they're there to do their job. Well, that's where it comes across as a quite TOS, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. And because, like, one, the supporting cast are barely in it. Two, they're barely in it. (laughs) It's only that we have, like, three and four where they are characters. And now we're back to them not being characters. Right. And they're just not treated with much respect. Like, Uhura having to... Well, A, having to do that dance, and then also (laughs) the bit with, like, trying to speak Klingon. You've got Scotty with the head bump. Chekhov and Sulu are just, like, joke characters, lost at the start, and then... (laughs) But uh, I guess the reason I was getting to that is just to, like, um, weirdly, I think we're mostly going to have a love fest on this one, so I thought we'd just get out all the... Just, you know, have have a good crap on the bad stuff. Before I watched it, and when I was, like, just hearing other people's hate, I had the impression that they get to the center of the galaxy and literally meet the Abrahamic god. <laughs> oh, you... That I, was, I, I was like, yeah, that sounds like the shittest film ever. Shatner ruined Star Trek. Oh, sorry. I was actually thinking of the T. I thought you crossed wires right. with the T.O.S. where Abraham Lincoln's like in space. No, no, I mean the god of the Christians, the Jews, and the yeah, Muslims, and, and, the and, Abrahamic god. <laughs> like I told you, I got my wires crossed there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. My idea is cool, too. And I was like, yeah, okay, if that was the case, it would... But it's not. It's classic Star Trek energy being pretending to be god shit why do people have a problem with it this time and not the million other times people love q (laughs) fibbing q there you know (laughs) we just got some recent q again by the way yeah but um anyway we're doing a first on this podcast i've decided to task scott with actually telling us the story of star trek 5 did you not get andrew to do reanimator no, I did. Oh re-animator. no, I did reanimator. You did reanimator. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is first. This is yeah, first. first time. It's not me or you. That's right. So uh, Scott, okay, take so it away. Cooked up a little preamble there. Away from grey seas to roam, isotopes echoing, fields and rice fields and verdant patches of forests. No sea on frothy foam are shadowing. But have you beheld in pretty birth heartbeat civilization's archipelagos of Kyoto? A tale. A tale as old as time. Stop me if you've heard this one before. 
Planet Nimbus 3, a place of galactic peace, is a wasteland. Gales rake the dust bowl as a weary paisano is boring for water, with futility, into the alkali dust, as an apocalyptic figure on horseback barrels down on him. A dialogue ensues between the two in this grit-blasted netherworld. Let us explore pain together, the sagely horseman claims. Share your pain with me. Instant healing and a tent revival conversion later, the dirt farmer gushes. How can I ever repay you for this miracle? His pain all gone. Exposing from his hood telltale ears hinting his origins, the man attests to the horseman, You're a Vulcan! And cue the trippy wizard Gandalf meets hobbit laughter. Good stuff. Meanwhile, on shore leave, the crew of the newly commissioned USS Enterprise are in Yosemite. For Captain Kirk, Spock and McCoy, this consists of shenanigans around a rock face and indulging in explosive combinations of bourbon and beans by a campfire, singing, row, row, row your boat before duty calls. While, at this cathouse cantina in the ironically named Paradise City, the Romulan Earthling and Klingon ambassadors are meeting, and the jadedness of the Earthling and Klingon are as palpable as the grog that flows. Only the Romulan ambassador emanates any sort of spiritually evolved vibe. A right kerfuffle is going on outside, as that sagely warrior on horseback is leading a ragtag horde to storm the gates of civilization, flawed as it is. One ambassador beams out an emergency call for help before they are seized as hostages. The horseman is soon revealed to be Cybok, the half-brother of Spock. It's a small galaxy after all, who is relying on the fact that the ambassador's governments will try to rescue them by starship. And Cybok is in need of just that, the way a televangelist is in dire need of a private jet. At the same time, Starfleet Command directs Captain Kirk to conduct the rescue of the ambassadors held hostage. Shore leave is over for now. Yet, the Enterprise is in a woeful state of repair, with less than a skeleton crew, Scotty laments to Uhura, just as they receive a red alert about Nimbus 3 being a priority 7 in the neutral zone. Klingon Captain Kla is a wild card, flying the ointment and counterpoint to the peaceful intentions of Starfleet Command an unscrupulous commander sallying forth to make a name for himself. Strutting arms akimbo, alpha masculine, he's on the hunt for space garbage that shoots back, a sort of U-boat captain hot on the heels for bigger prey, juicier than that NASA Pioneer 10 space probe he just blew to bits. For um, the Enterprise, the Galileo shuttlecraft is able to land on Nimbus 3 covertly, and upon the dunes at night, the good crew is able to overpower an enemy outpost to steal their horses, thanks to Uhura's svelte dancing atop a sand dune behind the moons, so to speak. Charging into Paradise City, Spock scans for the hostages held in the catty cat house cantina. Inside, the ambassador hostages pull guns on Kirk, the people he was going to save. Stockholm Syndrome, this ain't. They've been brainwashed. Spock and Cybok meet, but Spock refuses to change sides. You are under arrest for 17 violations of the Neutral Zone Treaty, to a gale of laughter. Cybok then announces his plans. I must have your starship. Namely, for a journey to the centre of the galaxy, to the planet of Shakkari. Spock and Kirk are impervious, unlike the others, to the mind-meld deception of Cybok, and Cybok knows Kirk is necessary to pilot the Enterprise onto Shakkari. With Kla in pursuit, the starship heads into the Great Barrier to land, via shuttlecraft, onto a desolate planet, just like Nimbus 3. Cybok summons the Creator, and a Zeus-like patriarch demands to know how he breached the barrier, and that the starship be fetched for him. Almost a Zen koan for Kirk, he asks, What does God need with a starship? Good question. The spell is broken, and it's evident this Creator was a creature, and the planet is its prison. Cybok realises he's been duped and dies at its hands, allowing the others to escape. Spock and McCoy beam back while Kla wails on the Enterprise. Back on the planet, the beastie tries to kill Kirk before it's given some Captain Kla grape shot. Kirk beams aboard the Klingon ship where Spock is waiting in time for a cocktail hour. And finally, Captain Kirk, Spock and McCoy can resume shore leave in greater harmony. A raindrop in the desert, reflection of pines, on depths vomited by a relentless fjord, yet now arisen to and groovy skies are grinning. Descent into the tiger's nest, floating on serene eddies, 
and of crystal sunsets intertwining, assemble in this droning sitar-like mind. Psychic harmonizing of Shazarazad, imprints on the tidal beaches, shellfish octopus swirling coastal reaches, eternal tribal rhythm of waters, susurrating into the mandalas of evermore. So, um... Well, like, we, we talk a little bit about the actors here. I mean, we I think we've basically covered them pretty heavily. Yeah. Well, in recording terms, this is our sixth Star yeah. Trek because we did five and six hours. So order. let's go with the guest stars, I guess. Um, David Warner's here. That's very cool. Yeah. He doesn't get a good role in this one, but he gets good roles he, in he, other Trek. Through his, like, smum... <laughs> He makes a thankless role pretty good. And is he hooking up with a Romulan? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Just um, yeah, sure. and that... It looked like it, yes. I did notice that. This is going to make me look like an idiot, because in Star Trek Six, I say, oh, is this the first Romulan in the films? There, she, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to pick her up as a Romulan. Yeah, she's barely a Romulan. Well, it's easy to pick her up, excuse me, but yeah. She doesn't, <laughs> All right. She, Maybe he's just an David absolute stud. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, um... It's not a big rhyme in the presence. Like, obviously, if you're going to have the planet of, what, eternal peace or galactic peace, yeah, you to need be. to have a Romulan representative there. If they made this in TNG, I guess you'd have to have a Cardassian there as well. Right. Yeah, she did definitely exude quite a bit of spirituality. The other two, like the Klingon and the Earthling, naturally seem quite jaded um, down on Paradise City. So. Take me um, down to the Paradise City. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, words by W. Axel Rose. Yeah. Um, uh, the so the other big actor here is um, Larry Lookinbill. They wanted Sean Connery, but they they weren't going to get Sean Connery. Oh, he does look like they wanted Sean Connery and didn't get Sean Connery. Shakari, <laughs> Shakari. Yep. <laughs> they really want him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, um, he just struck me as like. You know, the, the classic, you know, new age guru of the, you know, the, the 90s with all the the right sort of monikers and sort of, you know, uh, you know, drop of the hat mantras to throw out there, but um, to captivate it. I've recently fallen into the rabbit hole of listening to the entire oeuvre of the uh, QAnon Anonymous podcast. Mm. And they get into a lot of like cult leaders, cult groups, and it's terrifying how easily these people can do exactly what Cyborg does yeah. and just twist all these innocent minds into being their followers and doing heinous things. I guess it threw me off wa- watching this as a kid, just how easily the, you know, all our old stalwarts of the Enterprise crew were like turned he, over. He's doing like some kind of psychic thing. Mm. So you could say like, you know, they're being mind controlled, whatever. But he's also like, you don't need a psychic thing to, maybe if you want to get Uhura and Sulu, you do. But for him to have that following, a lot of people are doing it in our world with no psychic powers whatsoever. Exactly. But <laughs> I, I listened to another another cult cult podcast. Right. I, I don't, don't control minds; I free them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it all dovetails nicely. But yeah, apparently Shatner Shatner spotted this guy on uh, PBS or something, ah. and just was like. I discovered a new genius, and I this well. This is all he really did to speak of, but uh, he's good. I like him. He's good in this movie. Oh, okay. I thought you meant he discovered like a cult leader on like a public TV. No, no, he discovered Larry Lookinbill. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because he, his performance and his position in the film makes you think of like, oh, he's the huge guest star they got in. But then he's not really anybody. (laughs) No, he's just the guy Shatner really liked. There's there's a bit of that ego creeping in, I guess. But I, I prefer that to if he had been a stunt casting. He's no, he's not like Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, he says some great <laughs> metaphysical stuff. Yeah. But there's one thing I, I really like what um, Cyborg said, you know. Um, I think when the Klingons were attacking the ship under Kla, he said, um, do what you must, but no more. I mean, that's, that's a great uh, little mantra to live by if one must. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty neat. Um, I don't need my pain healed. Well, you don't until you meet Cybok. Uh, the main thing is we don't trust the Laughing Vulcan. There's nothing scarier than the Laughing Vulcan. Right. It's, what's especially interesting is he is not part human and Spock is. Yeah. <laughs> he, well, I mean, remember Romulans and Vulcans come from the same blood, so you can cut out of that. And yeah, well, that's one of, the, um, one of my favorite lines from the 
Kelvin Star Trek film, actually, um, where Sarek says to Spock, emotions run deeper in us than they do in the humans. We just have to control them. Because, yeah, Vulcans are not without emotion. They just don't mm-hmm. obey it. Mm-hmm. I think also one interesting thing Cyborg said, you know, he goes, let us explore pain together. So it's actually appealing to the baser senses of people. So there's something very primal and catchy about it. But um, actually, the, the thing, if you want to really reach out to people, appealing to their sense of higher purpose or altruism. But I think appealing to, like, the lower chakras or the basal instincts. Um, That's why he lost to Starfleet, who do appeal to the purely intellectual higher calling. That's why Spock and Kirk were going to win all along. Yeah, you know, Starfleet, I guess they're not supposed to let their ego get in the way too much. But uh, before we let go of the actors and the characters... Let's uh, talk about someone whose ego did get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> did it, though? Well, like, like the big issue we had at the start, I think that is all down to Shatner's ego. Yeah, I'm the star, this is a film about me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, otherwise, I mean, he really, I mean, he did... Roddenberry was not really hand on the tiller at this point at all with the movies. I guess the TV show is still a little bit. But, um, you know, this is a very Star Trek message and thought in the end. Like, like you said, you thought it was actually going to be God, but it's mm. not. It's, it's, it's actually the trope done on the big screen in a weird way. Um, the, yeah, the, over, the overall shape and ideas of the film, I think, are all great. I love the Planet of Galactic piece. I love the concept of this, like, laughing Vulcan villain. I love going to the center of the galaxy and discovering what's there and is it God or something. It's just the the minute-to-minute execution. Shatner is more the star than I think he's ever been. Or yeah. maybe, and maybe will ever be again in this one. Like, you know, at the start, Captain Kirk is climbing the mountain. Yes, why, why does he climb the mountain? He makes love to the mountain. Yeah. He envelops that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah <laughs> the mountain of love yeah <laughs> so Nimoy is just kind of like he's kind of playing wingman I guess this is the purest I mean which I think is the case in the show as well where it stars Kirk and then Nimoy and um, Kelly are the, like the mind and the heart yeah, like, it's a mythos, pathos, logos. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like the de- devil and angel sat on his shoulder, except instead of a devil and an angel, they're just, you know. These two dudes. I, well, I recently said to Matty and Rob at work that that's how I see them. <laughs> Matty is my McCoy and Kirk, Rob is my Spock. And the beauty of it is their advice cancels each other out and I can just do what I wanted to do anyway. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so D. Kelly definitely gets uh, a pretty intense scene where his pain is like what euthanizing his father mm. so how, how do we feel about that in mccoy's character it, it's, it's it, a big wrinkle but it makes a lot of sense for his characterization right and how he's you know such a driven doctor who's desperate to save everyone mm. i mean it's very um comic book one event origin stuff yeah but if you're gonna do that it's a good one but then they definitely give him a ball kick immediately after, the, you know, shortly after the, the cure was devised. Mm. Although he really wasn't looking so good in that bed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate, well, question at times, you know, so you've got the, the freight train coming and, you know, with someone you love. And uh, what do you do? Do you choose to, like, step in and act, spare them from their pain or... Or share their pain. Just let things, you know, work out. Um <laughs> Maybe um, according to nature. The, the, the only other thing that I really feel the need to um, to address actor character-wise is... I thought you might mind reading my, my thought there. No. Nope, the fan dance. I, I already mentioned it. Yeah. You know what? She's she looking she right. works it. She's looking right. It, yeah. <laughs> it was a bad idea, but she works it pretty it well. Groovy. Yeah. I mean, for uh, someone's white in their hair. Whose idea do you think it was? Hmm? Whose idea was it? Probably... I, I assumed every idea was Shatner. Well, she wanted to sing in the movie. Mm. Did she want to sing naked? I don't know. but Because <laughs> it, it feels like if it's 100% Shatner's idea, it's really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> if it's like Nichelle Nichols is like, you know, I want, a, I want a sexy scene in this one. I want mm. to be, you know, I think I've, I've done enough to be a sensible woman in a position of power. Now I want to be sexy. That could be the case. Then I, I'm 100% behind it. I'm sure she wanted to do the singing. 
Oh that, yeah, that's a hundred percent sure because she found a few spots in TOS to do that, and in the movies, this was the first time. So, well, yeah, she, her singing with Spock's harp <laughs> is the reason they have a like love story in Kelvin, basically. <laughs> it was funny too, like during that scene, uh, somebody on the uh, at, at the enemy's encampment they dropped the D bomb twice. You know, it's like, damn, and uh, I thought that was quite funny. And when they're apprehended right at the top of the dunes by, um, you know, oh, this is Spock and McCoy. Or, uh, Kirk. Somebody else goes, damn. damn. Yeah, this is really, really funny. <laughs> it seemed a little bit un, <laughs> yeah, a little bit un SF like in the year. Like, uh, what, what year is it? Like, 8154 <laughs> or something like that in the future. Yes, people are still saying, 22. damn. 8454, <laughs> January. Yeah. It's not the foundation. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. yeah, I guess my my thought on that is it, it does work, but it's a weird. Damn. Cast. <laughs> but sure, it works. So cool stunt <laughs> stunt casting your your cast, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Starbursts in the heart of the lightning illuminates my web of tantric philosophy by the light of a trillion lunar eclipses, broadens the mythology of this perennial biography. Behind sand dials of glitter, a sulfuric wilderness, I open my eyes and mind to see holes in the vastness. I, I watched Siskel and Ebert's review about um, Star Trek V, and they lambasted it. They were pretty pretty harsh, but um, I didn't have this, the sentiment that they did at all. Um, I, I can understand what they were saying, but... Um, uh, maybe they were true about everyone is getting sloshed in this film. Maybe they've seen the script. I thought the script was fine, but getting sloshed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, one, one weird thing, this is 1989, right? Mm. We, were, we were just talking Dick Tracy was 1990. It was kind of a, a slow year. Yeah. 1989 was hot and heavy. Ghostbusters 2, Last Crusade. Batman. Um, Batman. Uh, several other movies that, well, Star Trek V, but... The whole point is, you know, Star Trek movies up to this point had had, like, ILM doing their effects. Like, they had the top guys. Mm. And, and they were busy this year. So um, the effects, you know, Shatner and his, and his um, well, really just working out the kinks, I guess, in the end. But uh, it was like, in the yes, yes, because the, yeah, the second season Next Gen got screwed by that. But um, the effects in this movie was basically done by a guy that was talking a lot of shit from his garage in New Jersey. I did... When watching it, I was like, huh, like these models are fine, but this stuff is not green screened in as nicely as it is in all the other films. No, it was literally done in garage. I mean, I guess they got the official models. Yeah. Um, he, 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 if nothing else, he was a pro with that, like, um, you know, putting like cloudy stuff in water effects. Mm. That, that's quite nice here. But it's just like this weird analog clunky. But like I said, they're not good effects compared to the other big effects movies of this year. It's, it's clunky as hell. But it's just the I, like a you know the imagination, like the guy didn't have the resources. He might not quite have the talent, but it looks kind of cool in the end to me. Yeah. So I remember thinking as I was watching it though, the effects were not quite up to snuff. The cinematography in terms of everything that's just physically in front of the camera is fucking stunning in this film. Mm. Like the mountain climbing scene looks beautiful. Like um, everything on the planet of peace looked amazing. Like that opening of like the desert and cyborg oh, riding yeah, that's out of the sand. That's like all-time, like one of the all-time classic westerns. That's gorgeous stuff. <laughs> so like Shatner does know what he's doing on a, when he's you know What's with a camera. In great part, they just ran out of money. Um, mm. The other big part of the design was the end was supposed to be like eight times more epic. Though I do enjoy like a weird disembodied head chasing around the desert. That's cool. I can love that. But it's it was, like a video game boss. Yeah. It's like fighting Andros at the end of Star Fox. It's like Zardos from the 70s, <laughs> one which I definitely want to talk about at some point. But uh, yeah, um, it was supposed to be what, like eight l large rock creatures or like, you know, the, right. the, that, that weird stone right because didn't they reuse those rock creature effects for galaxy quest or something well they they referenced them they yeah, didn't yeah, reuse yeah. them but uh no but but yeah i remember on a different podcast you mentioning like oh yeah those rock creatures are very explicitly based on ideas for something else yeah there's supposed to be like eight of them in this movie but that's why it's like have those like you know um, well, it has like the spires coming out of the ground and right stuff, those but... were going to turn into the rock creatures yeah okay so you know he was looking but honestly i kind of like the weird disembodied glowing head chasing him through the desert ending just as fine yep and then the encounter with the klingons again it, it's totally weird looking with the compositing but 
you make do with what you have. Yeah. And on Paradise City, too, um, there's a few scenes there where all the, the buildings there have this blue aura. It's really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, if you just look at it at what it is for what it is, um, I think it's quite a good a good experience. Um, it's not in an odd judgmental way. Um, it's not fantastic cinema, but it's, it's a pretty groovy ride if you just allow yourself to be taken away by it. That's uh, not the sidebox sense of the word, but uh, <laughs> just in your own sort of yeah groove. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's 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 focus on what what is the worst effect. Because I feel like I like most of these pretty well in the end. It, there was nothing that took me out of enjoying the film. I definitely noticed the shuttlecraft landing uh, was pretty wonky, and then they used the same composite shot for landing on Nimbus 3 and the God Planet, <laughs> which you wouldn't usually do in a major motion picture, but they right. did that here. Yeah, I just remember... I don't remember a specific shot. I just remember looking at spaceships and thinking, like, oh, I can kind of see the outline more than I can usually. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, Nimbus 3 and um, I guess uh, Shakari seem to be the same place, like Death, um, not Death Valley, but maybe Joshua Tree or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, um, it was somewhere not too far from uh, Hollywood. Uh, just with Desert. maybe different lenses used, but um, yeah, it's was, it was, uh, it was kind of maybe Maybe it's an apt metaphor because maybe that the, the heaven is promised is actually a hell. So, um, Oh, yeah, I, that shot of... Um, of the the god thing which was actually the roddenberry 70s movie pilot name the god thing but um <laughs> where the god thing is uh walking through with the visage of cyborg that that shot actually creeps me out yeah it's pretty it's good it's a creepy shot <laughs> for to be more optimistic to your point scott it could be that heaven is just a place where we have to work towards peace yeah because i mean you know, maybe, you know, I, and I kind of think so too, like there's, there's no quick fixes, you know, it's not a wave of a wand or something like that. Um, actually, Kirk himself says, you know, you know that pain can't be taken away with a magic wand. Mm. Yeah, so. Um, and, and I'll get into my yeah. thought on that in, in a bit. I don't know. Are we ready to move on, on to philosophy stuff? Let's philosophize, bitches. Can... Okay, let's clap it. Give a clap. Give Are a we clap. doing that for all of them? No, we didn't yeah. do it for the last one. <laughs> We're good. by Highland Crescent Lakes. Doors conceal passages into archway complexities. Everything is a circular utopia amidst the baseline pathways over cocktail carpets surfing on silvery mezcal. Into hives of... Yeah, I could do with some of those... Um, <laughs> I could do with an explosive combination of bourbon and beans. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, sure. What you, yeah, riff on that. Where are you well, going? Matt, you're from the south. Do you have a beans recipe? I don't personally have a beans recipe. Your family has to have one, though, right? I've eaten lots of baked beans. You know what? I was a Boy Scout. We went camping, and I, we definitely did our thing. As I understood it, it was just like everyone in the South has an old family bean recipe. <laughs> well, my family's from the Mid-Atlantic. We, they, okay. they were transplants. Ah. But no, no, no. I, I mean, Tenders. I was camping a lot, and we definitely worked on our beans. So I can be done. We did not sit around and sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. but That really annoys me because there's another verse. <laughs> and they never get to the fun verse. Yeah, I don't know. It, that's that's a weird thing. It's it's such a wretch scene when they start singing row, 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 row your boat, and especially D can't sing, right? The other two can't either, but they at least put out albums. <laughs> you know? But um, I don't know. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo. I, I think it's really fun. That's just the worst um, song. I love it. it. I, I think it lightens up a lot of the, the melodrama and excess seriousness of hard sci-fi sometimes because um well camadri you know, camadri wise like, yeah because i think that's what took out some of the uh enjoyment of some of the mid-period or uh star wars for me um it just got too serious and um i, th I think this was uh yeah there's a lot of dad jokes and stuff in there but uh yeah i mean it's it, it's 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 fun for what it is i think it's just like the, life specifically yeah. the choice of row 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 your boat 
they act like it's something much more fun and wacky than it actually is. That, it could have been just like good bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, just, I mean, the film acts like. I know, I enjoyed it. Isn't yeah. it funny they're singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat? But, like, they should have been something like singing something really ribald and, you know. One of you is giving you a problem with McCoy's uh, bourbon explanation. It wasn't me. Scott, you had an issue uh, with the bourbon? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I think there's this one little thing, like, um, so. McCoy says, you know, this is like Tennessee whiskey, um, and Kirk refers to it as bourbon and beans, but actually Tennessee whiskey is not bourbon. Um, there's, I think there's a different process used for it. Like technically it's like Lincoln County process or something. It's like a way of, um, filtering the, uh, corn mash or something. So forgive me for any minor infarctions with that one but I, I think there is like a, a, there is a little bit of a there actually is probably a big difference but yeah. no I just I've had my tour of the Jack Daniels distillery like with the old man who seemed really drunk it was fantastic <laughs> <laughs> that's the place to indulge the uh, cyborg journey there <laughs> anytime I went to London there would always be a huge poster in the underground for the for Jack Daniels telling the story of where it comes from whatever and making it sound much more interesting than it is <laughs> hey it was a pretty hip distillery you should visit it's a dry county, interesting. You can't you can't actually drink in the county. In the county? Yeah. <laughs> like in your own home? I, I mean, you can't buy. Huh? You'd go to the next county and buy it, but yeah. Uh, where were <laughs> we? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, let's philosophize a little bit. Um, I So I think the issue with Cybox's uh, quick fix is it's a quick fix. Not a quick fix. It's actually a notable fix that you cannot make unless you make it yourself. I mean, that's the issue with Cybok. You know, he's, he's, it might be a psychic trick. He might actually just be convincing people really well, but um, he's trying to engender a, um, a sea change within your soul that uh, basically is, you know, you have to do it yourself. I feel like he's convinced himself that he's doing something much more spiritual and wholesome than he actually is. And really, all he's doing is convincing people. Again, common with the cult leader. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, at most, I think all the really great cult leaders believed their own bullshit by the end. Oh, the really great cult leaders. <laughs> yeah, the ones who killed like 50, 60 people. <laughs> the ones who drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like all like important human growth, human breakthroughs comes from properly dealing with your pain and your struggles. Like, anyone who just tries to get away from that shit, bury it, it's going to come back. Well, that's, that's the, the key, one of the key lines of the movie. I need my pain. Like, no, he doesn't, but he is right in he putting needs... forth that Cybox not the guy that's going to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. He would have to do that himself. You don't have to keep your pain, but you have to, like, actually grow through it. You mm. can't just bury it or forget it or switch it off. But like, like Scott just said, Kirk anchors himself with the pain. Hmm. Is that good? It's not good for him personally. But I guess that there'll be a time later to, like, you know, um, like you guys said, you know, to let it go. Um, but, yeah, it's because I guess if you don't anchor it down, like, you know, the, the sort of the dirt farmer at the beginning, um, he sort of joins off this on this quest and um, – you know, it's a, a bit like I was thinking of, I couldn't help thinking of the Children's Crusade back in the day. And uh, it's just so, man, it's just so messed up. Like, you know, kids being led off by sort of a Pied Piper. I'm sure it's a bit more complex than that. But, I mean, um, they become a means to an end for some megalomaniac. Well, they tried it again with World War One. <laughs> oh, there's, there's no end to it. I mean, I think one difference with Cybok was he, he wasn't as malignant as he could have been. Um, like in the 20th century or 21st century, unfortunately, you know, we've got characters on stage that, um, that have different varying degrees of that sort of psychopathy or, um, dis disorder. Well, that's the thing. Cybok is notable. I mean, he's likable enough. He's notable enough that this is the only thing he's in. Like, I mean, come on, Spock has a sister now and no one ever mentioned Cybok anymore. I thought that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, uh, I guess... I guess what I felt it's it's, it's a really ancient story. Um, it's kind of like uh, like a failed quest of you know for Cybok, so the, with misguided idealism. So I don't think he's a psychopath, but um, 
No, yeah, it reminds me of like a Holy Holy Grail quest or something. Mm. And you know, some pretty shitty things were done to try and find the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah, I think the one thing that really shone through, not not to sound cheesy, but was like definitely the bonds of friendship. But but maybe it's not cheesy. It's like um, this really connects us to um, our experience in this reality for the moment, and it, maybe. Yeah, the real way to us. deal with pain is to share it with someone. Well, that's the thing with this film. It is it really is the best, you know, um, look into the Kirk Spock McCoy relationship at the expense of the rest of the cast, as you mentioned. But mm. uh, it really does. Like, I mean, the movies kind of just have them out doing their thing, even in six. You know, the the show. You know, we got like the Tholian web, where like we see what happens when Kirk is not in their their little mixture. Mm. You know, and this one really just goes into like why it's so important. Like when the entire crew is basically you know brainwashed. But um, those three, are they still kind of yeah, yeah. Like that, it holds true. And and so Kirk doesn't need his pain. He needs his, his friendship. He needs to trust other people. But going back to the like needing your pain thing, the place I most often see that argument is with artists, you know? Like, oh, yeah, you know, George Lucas only made good stuff back when he was poor and he had something to write about, or, you know, oh, but would Kurt Cobain have made such great music if he wasn't living through his pain? I wonder if you need pressure, not pain. I find myself, when I do artistic things, being way more prolific when I don't actually have time to do it. I, yeah, my best stuff is with, like, it has to be a right, if there's too much pressure, I shut down and can't do it. Mm. It has to be, like, just like a deadline is all I need. That's why I'm so much better at doing these kind of podcasts and videos and stuff <laughs> than doing like some big project because it's like, well, I just I know I need to make this ten minutes of content in the next week. No, this morning. Do it. This morning, I was like, I have forty-five minutes before I need to leave. I got fifteen minutes to do this, fifteen minutes to do this, fifteen minutes to do this. All of those, it prob- probably would have been better to have more than fifteen minutes, but I just bang, bang, bang. You know. I think people just they make the mistake of equating. Artists need pain with artists need passion. <laughs> and of course, when you are a struggling, starving artist, you must have passion because that's the only reason you're doing your art. Mm. When you're doing the art because it makes you millions of dollars, maybe you don't have passion for it anymore. Because I guess also like, um, sorry about just very quick, just um, with the opening scene, like the people on Nimbus 3. So they were there for like a dream, like, you know, this idealistic place, which is which sounds good on paper. Um, but I guess... You know, they kind of, I guess, hoped somebody would carry them through. So maybe this is actually, and it doesn't work from their experience, but uh, maybe we, like you guys said, we have to do it ourselves. It comes from within. It's, um, you just can't rest on the back of somebody else. So, um, yeah, there's no real kind of, you know, other people can guide you, but you can't put your spiritual evolution in their hands because that would be a big mistake. Well, Does that, anyone want to know what happens to Nimbus 3, like, if we go ahead with novels? Because this movie's already kind of not considered canon, so it's a novel. Okay. I, I, I mentioned, actually, in Star Trek 4, I'd read the Picard novel. Right. Which builds up to the Picard series. In that, um, there's actually, like, a bit of a kerfuffle in Nimbus 3, where um, the Raman has basically come down to massacre everyone, and Picard has to let it happen because, um, because it would just be politically, like, too intense for him not to do that. So that's one of the reasons Rafi becomes so pissed at Picard because he let this massacre happen on Nimbus 3. Huh. So just kind of, you know, that Pine Galactic piece just keeps getting worse and worse in the end. See, I kind of like it to just work out. <laughs> it does not work you out. You know on what 3. I would love? I like a Sim City type game where you just build Nimbus 3. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? I don't know. It might get depressing when everyone. Oh, well, the if they make show. it like that. <laughs> If they just let you have some peace. But I guess what what all of our points are kind of building to is that no one can give you the answers to these spiritual questions. That's why I don't like cults, and it's why I don't like organized religion. It's the same thing. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all of it, they're just cults. The yeah. answers are not in a book, and they're not coming from anyone but yourself. Yeah, It's worth discussing. It's worth talking about these spiritual things. But no one's going to give you the answers. I think you can integrate them, like, in a healthy way. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's um, you know, you need the heart and the mind working together. Um, oh, and that's back sorry. to your Spock and McCoy, right? Or Metro- Ooh, sorry, exactly. I was going Metropolis there. Yeah, yeah the archetypes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Um, well, one thing I, I had an interesting just um, – because I've gone down a few um, rabbit holes in the past, just was thinking the need for a starship, um, like going from 3D into the, the next dimension or, you know, parallel dimensions, was a little bit like um, Jack Parsons, you know, the um, – with the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, he was working with Alistair Crowley. And Hubbard. Um, to, <laughs> yes, Hubbard, don't forget Hubbard. Yeah, to sort of break on through to the other side. Yeah, so... What does God need with a starship? No, no, that's not how you say it. It's, excuse me, what does God need with a starship? Yeah, excuse it's gotta be me, more it's sass. Quite... It's got to be more like... Yeah, chalant, non it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's Shatner at peak Karen. I, I agree with you. I, I completely, yeah, you, you, you hit that perfect button. I did not. Yep. Because, <laughs> yeah, if, the Go reason I love that line is because he doesn't overly dramatize it. Yeah. It's just like, gotcha. Because <laughs> one thing about Spock was he calls um, Cyborg out about the pursuit of forbidden knowledge. And uh, so maybe that would be like um, with uh, maybe some people's pursuit of the occult. Which I'm not saying is a bad thing. It's just occult just means hidden. So um, I'm not labeling as bad or good, but there is some risks involved. So maybe um, it also refers to like, because um, maybe Spock's point of view is a little bit too conservative. Um, so maybe there's a, a happy medium somewhere. But just wondering, it's like a sidebox sort of got derailed um, earlier on by um, not having a solid basis of reason. Um, His father is so. Sarek. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> One one thing I really love about that is, of course, at first they're trying to stop Sarek commandeering their ship, but I feel like there's a point where Cyborg. Once it no no sorry yeah Cyborg. <laughs> there's a point where once it's happening, Kirk's just like, well okay I guess I'm along for the adventure I'm going to enjoy it. Well he gets he gets command to do the adventure at least. I mean yeah, Cyborg... once they're going through the the void going through the barrier, you can tell that at this point Kirk's like. Oh, I'm kind of into this. Yeah, I'm doing some Star Trek in right well, that's now. That's the thing with <laughs> that's the thing with Cybok. He's not he's not a screwed up soul. He's just a misguided soul. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. He's not. We talked about Star Trek Four. Like, kind of doesn't have a villain. This one too, in a way. The Cybok is you know the antagonist. Oh, it's got the Klingons. <laughs> it does. <laughs> who who shouldn't even be here? It just jumbles up the juice. That's just because they had like a two. Two, three, four felt like an ongoing series, and they wanted to make it feel like it was the next part of that. <laughs> and of course, six did conclude all of the Klingon stuff, so I kind of see why they were there a bit. But you, you already had a Klingon ambassador on the planet of peace. You didn't need a spaceship full of metalheads trying to get Kirk. and just showing up at like the most annoying times. And then possible. having like, a, sorry, Mister Kirk, that I won't do funny. it again. <laughs> Not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> yeah. There's another good line too, like I think um like Cybok just got off the ship on, you know, Shakari and just looking around at this really, you know, pastel washed kind of bleak landscape. He's got the land, the sky, just as I knew it would be. And the other thing thinking, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> One day my son, this will all be yours. Desert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the the land, land sky. Just as I knew it would be. They are there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> it's a land and sky you never knew before. Yeah, I've got to try using that on my coworkers here in Tokyo. Yeah. The buildings, the crows. Ah, Eden is here. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow's the time to start. That's right, become my own cyborg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys up in the mountains got a better chance of it. The problem is, you do that in Japan, people would agree. <laughs> we become yeah. our own cyborgs. This is only advice if you're oh, living yeah. in Japan. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I do 100% get the uh, I'm going to climb it because it's there mentality. <laughs> So um, it's most weekends for me. Yeah. So Scott, I, I told you I was going to completely derail you, which I think we managed to do pretty well. Are there any major other like points you had on your funker? Yeah, I, I just think the issue of friendship, like the maidship, um, really insulates people from the uh, manipulations or the machinations that um, I guess some populist leaders might have, or some wolves in sheep's clothing. That's yeah. The, yeah that's a huge real world issue <laughs> you look at these like hate groups online groups anything 
the number one factor that drives people to them is just loneliness. You find a group of people who kind of agree with you online. You're like, oh, I've got friends now. And then they, they start leaning a bit further to the right than you'd like. You're like, well, I'll go along with it because I've got friends now. And it eventually it's like, well, I'm a Nazi, but at least I've got friends now with the other Nazis. <laughs> Nazi with friends. <laughs> it's true, though. And that's um, the, the best way to get people out of those hate groups. It's just to show them, like, like there are other people who can care about you. These well, aren't the only people in the world. Yeah, who will you, ever put, you put a neo-Nazi and a Jewish dude in a room and, and force them to have a conversation. They're probably going to get along. That, well, no, that I, I listened to a podcast. They're interviewing the, a guy who left a neo-Nazi group, and now is the expert in getting people out of those groups. And that's one of the main things he does: sits them down with one of the people they think they hate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think fighting hate with hate. Uh, I just, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, with fire, with fire. unfortunately, life is nasty sometimes. You know, there is war and strife, but yeah, but love is the way. Yeah. Of course, if you meet a Nazi in the street, punch their lights out because they, they can't be allowed to spread their rhetoric. But, you know, once you've dragged them into a dark alley, <laughs> you could try and be their friend. Just be smart about it. <laughs> well, like, more sincere than a mind, well, than a cyborg mind meld because um, that's. Uh, pretty manipulative so i mean i think make star trek 6 double fucked yeah, i was they make about to say point i was like mind, being mind melding is a little more hardcore in cybox because they make a whole point of he's bad for misusing the mind meld in this one and then spot goes and does it in the next one but at least he's making people happy yeah where he's definitely not making people happy in six. i mean spock is not making people happy in six um so but maybe just very quickly maybe consciousness has changed since this came out because um uh i it's funny all of us have watched it and we kind of dug the groove i mean i've I, it doesn't deserve uh, in my humble opinion just the, the you know the vitriol that it got when it came out i mean there's it, it's not wonderful but i mean there's some really good things so how about you guys does it have that vitriol anymore That's everyone we've spoken to does seem to like it that's the thing I get. Like, like again, I hated it when I saw it the first day, or opening or pre-opening night. But yeah, we keep asking people. Okay, oh, yeah, we actually kind of like Star Trek Five. Star Trek fans are the Nazis, and you need to sit them in a room with the Jew that is Star Trek Five. That <laughs> seems to be wrong. Oh, oh, <laughs> my new J-pop idea. I think I mentioned this to you. I, I think I might mention this, Scott, too. But um, my new idea for the the J-pop boy band, Johnny's band, if you if you know J-pop. Is is going to be um, uh, um, accidentally racist? Yes, thank you. You told me this morning. Make <laughs> <laughs> a boy band whose whole thing is they say unintentionally racist. <laughs> it's impossible though. You can't create a group who are unintentionally racist because than it's than just intentionally. Un- unintentionally. Unintentionally, that's but it. Yeah. Unintentionally <laughs> racist. But you're intentionally making them unintentionally racist. <laughs> I know. That's why it's so funny. Not a- it's not accidents. Unintentionally racist. That's yeah. Listeners at home, if you don't understand the concept that Matt has where he creates what he thinks would be a funny J-pop group. Don't worry, you're just in the same boat as dude, all of us who don't understand dude, Matt's K-pop, idea of K-pop recently made the number one spot in the States. Mm, People nice. know this now. No, I'm not saying they don't understand J-pop. I'm saying they don't understand your weird jokes <laughs> of, I've come up with this idea for what would be an uncomfortable band to encounter. <laughs> but I, I think well, well-placed humour um, definitely can break, break the ice. I mean, uh, people can maybe connect on human terms. I think politically, I think it's okay to disagree. Um, we, I, I don't like the idea of agreeing with everyone because we'd become like Cybox crew. But um, I think if we can use humor to understand each other. Um, I do agree with yeah. you about that. The problem is a lot of people have co-opted that argument to say that, oh, it's fine to disagree on some things that it's really not. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can disagree with you of how we should approach economic and environmental issues. I can't disagree with you on whether black people are human. <laughs> like, but the sort of the both sides-ism has been taken really far these days. Yeah. Maybe that's where Shatner, like, kind of, uh, it's like a time bomb. You know, in 1989, I was like, what the fuck is this? Mm. And now it's like... Maybe this film has a few more things to mention. Maybe Shatner's ego is ahead of its time, man. It's still an ego, but it, you know, it did have something to say, which didn't make a whole lot of sense in You're, Reagan '89. Well, maybe foolish, you but. need an ego to like think, oh, I'm the guy to ask these questions. Because, like, famously, Roddenberry has a huge. I was ego. about to say he had the same ego, didn't but he, he had. He, but because of that ego, he felt like, well, I'm the guy to make you know, this vision of what a utopian future should look like. 
So maybe to create like great stories, you need to be egotistical enough to think you're the one to tell them. Well, Nimoy, Nimoy made better films, right? I but mean, he made very introspective, small human stories. Right, but his main message was save the whales, where Shatner mm. just went for like full on like the depths of philosophy, which right. is not a good idea. But you have to have the ego to do it, right? Right, right, yeah. Well, Shat, uh, yeah, like Enoy, Nimoy was talented, but. It was not ambitious enough to do something insane. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, speaking of books again, Shatner's gone like full on, like fantastically insane with some of the novels as well. There's a there's this thing where uh, I, I Shat, like Kirk is like bring it, brought back like the next generation to Aaron. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A there's a whole series of that. I didn't actually bother reading those, the Shatnerverse. The Shatnerverse, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's named after him, and it's about Kirk. I don't. I mean. How much did he write, though? Well, I, I like to, again, I like to think he had that bourbon or Tennessee whiskey sat yeah, down just, here and just talked into a paper and someone else made sense out it. of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a salient point. Like, um, you know, people still externalize God. And, you know, everyone has their, their viewpoints. But um, these movies kind of spiritually, um, you could look at it as a useful tool, too, to sort of, you can't really look for, like, an Eden outside everything's you know the kingdom of heavens within so. we're deep in space um, <laughs> no but there but the, the end of the yeah, film is the center of the galaxy yeah, yeah. yeah. Row, row, row your boat that's yeah. the center of the universe man life is but a dream the, <laughs> the people around you that you know that keep you balanced we say oh you're not just a friend but actually you know we need oh, to please. maybe reappraise who our friends are <laughs> and, uh, value them yeah more than ever because uh, yeah well I don't know. I, I guess we're winding down because it's, it's maybe maybe we need our 2012 awakening to have this movie make sense, man. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, maybe cosmic thoughts, indeed. Maybe we've all just turned weird living in Japan, and that's why we all like it. Yeah, but again, <laughs> we've talked to all the Americans that seem yeah. to go and like it too, and a few of the Brits too. <laughs> well, I, th- I think like 2020 has definitely permanently altered people's brains. So. Yeah, this is such a happy movie to watch now. <laughs> But I, I liked it before 2020 as well. Uh, I, I, I think I, I think it was probably it might have been the time I popped in with Scott, like after drinking too much, and that was maybe the first time I, was like, I think I like this movie. Yeah. Well, like I said, the first time I watched it, I genuinely was like, "This is not as bad as everyone said." <laughs> and this time I watched it, and I was like, "Oh, this is legit good." <laughs> it's got a good flow to it too, and you know, it doesn't drag along in any place in particular yeah, apart so. from a few little stops do any stuff, of them? it's not gruesome yeah three a bit yeah do what yeah one and three are probably the only star trek films that drag yeah it TOS does ones. Not i haven't watched the tng ones yet okay oh really well recently oh okay <laughs> they, they don't drag too much but uh, they make a few errors here and there so <laughs> um I guess we're bringing this into, into the, the 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 space dock then so um our podcast oh, you wanna, i mean you Oh, I had one more closing thought I wanted to give. Oh, hit the closing thought. We, so, we got 14 minutes here. Yep. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a big Digimon fan. And the argument you always get with Digimon fans is they're like, oh, I hate it when it becomes the Matt and Ty show. Which is basically saying, I hate it when the show concentrates on its main characters. Because <laughs> it has an ensemble cast, but it has two who are clearly the stars, right? Mm. And this, that's what the, the Star Trek thing is. Like, It is nice when it concentrates on everyone else. It does have three main characters, and it's okay to make films about them sometimes. <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah, like, like we've all said, we don't like the Scotty head bump or the Uhura forgetting Klingon. But just sidelining them a bit is not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I mean... And that is this film's biggest sin, really. Mm. Everything else people can play... Like the effects, eh, they're not the best, they work. I like the them. plot's weird, that's, that's a good thing in my book. Yeah. Like, it's, it flows well and the cinematography's great. So the only real, like, only complaint I would genuinely give someone is, yeah, it is a bit shit how it treats the other cast. But, you know, there are other films about them. It has a lot of uniform inconsistency. Oh, really? There's just all those weird away uniforms. Here's one for the shuttlecraft. Here's just, like, the special <laughs> captains. It doesn't matter. That, I'm just, showing off I'm uniforms. Throwing, I'm just throwing out that the uniforms just really look notably different than they do in the other ones. A lot less Monster Maroon. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... I, I do like a bit of variety in my uniforms, though. Yeah. I like a different color for each department. And no, stuff. I, I actually kind of like seeing the different ones, but yeah. uh, they weren't my favorites either. So, You know what's uh, been really bugging me recently with Star Trek? No one ever wears a spacesuit. <laughs> or any protective gear. 
that's too way too much. Um, oh, the animated series—they had those weird force field things. Like I was watching the one, you know, the one where um, Picard falls in love with that random science officer, right? And she goes on that planet and nearly dies, right? Because they were dealing with a firestorm and she just went down in a shirt. Don't <laughs> 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 you tell me the Enterprise doesn't have just some armor you can wear for that shit? All right, well, you're reaching for the Kelvinverse here, Scott, uh, yeah. Spock, and Enzo Volcano. Yeah, exactly. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I know it's just because they can't afford that shit, but yeah. when it becomes a plot thing, it's real dumb. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, uh, our podcast. Can you can find out? our podcast on Twitter's at MLSFSpod. We're on Facebook. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. And on your podcasting app of choice, give us a review or whatever if you want. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Scott, creatively, what do, what do you do on the net? Um, I'm... Um... I'm just doing my thing, a little bit of uh, songwriting, working with Matt, um, and uh, hoping to put out a book by next year. Dude, you're supposed so, to uh, say a website. Okay. <laughs> That's <okay>. Yes, yeah, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm still, I, I'm on Australian time here, so Australian <laughs> Japan time. <laughs> row, row, rowing my boat. Yeah. Row, 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 your boat dot com. Roving sage media dot bandcamp dot com is a place yeah, There we that. go. And, um, row, row, row for your sage. Yes. I don't know. Maybe we should do your Mario again. Oh, uh, yeah, if, if you like Mario, I've been um, reviewing every Mario game in 35 seconds each for the 35th anniversary. Um, by the time you hear this, I'll probably be into the 3D ones. I don't know. 35 but, seconds, that's yep. so sure. If you, like, if you like how Matt looks, he does extremely graphic HD porn. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can find at rovingsagemedia.bankham.com. <laughs> Catering to everyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll thank you for joining us tonight, but I, I call you like every other night, so whatever. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Word up. Well, talk to you soon. Yeah. Take care, Scott, you guys. you and the listeners at home can all please go and find your nearest mountain and climb it because it's there. you got to make love that mountain. Envelop that mountain. <laughs>
Tradewind Navigators on Altair Celestial Book. Deep Space Aviators, launched from Citadels in Brave Kirkuk. The things of the soul, truth be all told, were never meant to ever be sold. See through impulse, we're question desire. priest and walk through the fire. Springs of fire and water to immerse and be clean from the myra of dust to transcend from water.